You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Fuck this note. He's going to beg me on his hands and knees to surrender. You will not be defeated in the mountains. You were born and raised in the crags and mountains of your homeland. You will not let some Roman hold you hostage within them. Your generals, Gannicus and Castus, have been spoiling for a fight since you retreated to the safety of this ridge. How could you have been so stupid to trust a Cilician pirate? They remind you daily. And now, look what you've done! You've gone and walked right into another trap! You don't remind them that had your forces not arrived when they did, both Gannicus and Castus would have also been for the underworld. Everyone is cold, everyone is hungry, and everyone wants someone to blame. Everyone but her. Her eyes have been sad lately, and her brow furrowed. You ask her what the god says. What does Dionysus wish you to do? If there was ever a time for him to make his will known, now is it. But her eyes are far away. She spends more and more time communicating with the god, in drink, or in prayer, or in conversation with her snake. And when she does turn to you, she says that the god has told her that the only way out is through the storm. Her words are riddles that you don't have time to unpick. So you spend more time alone, looking at the situation you have found yourself in. Crassus surrounds you on all sides. Three sides of this frozen ridge end in sheer cliffs to the surging sea. And even if you could rappel down, there's the matter of the navy anchored at the base of the cliffs, just waiting for you to try. Crassus has built a deep trench, too deep to cross, and an even higher wall to keep your people trapped on the ridge where he wants them, starving and angry, ready to tear each other apart. His soldiers, Roman cowards, taunt your people daily. The smell of Roman cooking wafting down over the ridge causes your people to riot. They are starving, they are scared, and it's only a matter of time before Crassus storms down and attacks them. The only way out is through the storm. You decide it's time to remind your people of what is at stake. You tell Castus to bring you one of the Roman prisoners. Make sure it's an officer. You crucify him in the no-man's land late at night. You want the Romans to wake up to his dying screams. 
You want your people to remember what the Romans will do to them if they fail. You want to create a maelstrom in Crassus. You want him to see that he has not broken you, that you still have more tricks up your sleeve. You want him to be constantly guessing what you will do next. The next day, there is a storm, snow thick enough to cover your tracks. Your people are freezing and dying, and in the midst of their misery, you send Crassus a treaty. You offer him terms you know he cannot accept, terms designed to infuriate him. You want him raging in his tent, his eyes and attention far away from the ridge. Once it is dark, once the wind is howling and you cannot see more than two inches in front of your face, you call for Gannicus and Castus. You tell them, bring the prisoners, bring the dead, bring the wood and the cattle. I have found our way off this cursed ridge. The only way out is through the storm. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. And this is also our final episode in our epic Spartacus series. But don't worry, it's not the final episode of our season. Jenny, I'm not going to lie to you, but it was so hard for me to write this episode. You did not want to let go of Spartacus. I did not, and I might have procrastinated just a little more than usual. I was ready to kill you. You were. But I had such a hard time saying goodbye to Spartacus and his rebel army and telling the climax of this incredible true story. I'm not going to give you spoilers, even though this is ancient history, but maybe you should have some tissues on hand. Look, Spartacus story doesn't end happily, shall we say. Yeah, no, it does not end happily. I was just like, are you going to somehow pull it out and make a case for it ending happily, Jen? Because I'm curious <laughs> as to what you're going to say. There's nothing I can say, but we don't want to give you spoilers. We're not that kind of ancient history podcast. In our last episode, Spartacus's army suffered a major rift. Crixus and Spartacus's Gallic forces split from the main body of the rebel army and remained in southern Italy, pillaging, raiding, and drawing out the bulk of the Roman army. Whether the split in Spartacus's forces came from infighting or from a plan to help divert Roman attention from Spartacus's group with all the non-combatants while they slipped over the Alps, we'll never know. The rest of Spartacus's army marched north to the Alps, and the plan was for Spartacus's army to cross the Alps and then, we're assuming, disappear back to their home countries of Thrace, Germania, Gaul, Scythia, Greece, Spain, etc. We don't really know what their ultimate plan was. We're conjecturing. All conjecture here. But things did not go according to plan. Spartacus's Gallic forces, led by Crixus, were defeated at Mount Gargano. Crixus fought bravely and died in the shadow of the mountain, his eyes looking towards the sky and freedom. At least, that's my fanfiction version of it. If it ended a different way, come back and argue with me, Crixus. Yeah, Crixus, tell us which direction you were facing when you died. You know, maybe <laughs> maybe we just want to scale back the expectations of the small talk here. Like, Crixus shows up and he just wants to share a wine and a cheese plate and talk about his day. I'm fine with that. We don't have to go straight to the tough stuff. Look, I'm fine with it. I'm giving him a very poetic ending. If he needs to go straight to the honor is at stake, let's set this record straight sort of conversation, that's on him. We would certainly welcome Crixus on the show if he wants to come on the show. Absolutely. Returning hero. That's right. Anyway, here's what happened to the rest of Spartacus's forces. Spartacus's Germanic forces, led by Gannicus and Castus, also suffered heavy casualties as the army marched north. Most of the Germanic forces were killed, but Castus and Gannicus survived. When Spartacus tried to cross the Alps, he was met with resistance from the governor of Cisalpine Gaul. 
Even though Spartacus defeated the governor and his army, Spartacus chose to turn around and not go over the Alps after all. Perhaps the weather had taken a terrible turn, it was early spring, maybe Spartacus realized that the path through the Alps would be too dangerous, too narrow, and too uncertain to bring his army through, especially without the Germanic forces. We'll never know the exact reason why Spartacus decided he wasn't going to cross the Alps. We can only speculate and furiously write fanfiction in our heads, that's all we can do. As Spartacus was making this crucial decision, he got terrible news. Crixus, his second-in-command, the leader of his Gallic forces who'd split off from him for reasons unknown, was dead. Spartacus decided to throw a series of gladiatorial-style funerary games for Crixus, pitting 300 Roman war prisoners, most likely captives of the recent battle with the governor of Cisalpine Gaul, against each other in hand-to-hand combat for the honor of the fallen Gauls. And this had to have really pissed off the Roman Senate. They had run out of generals, they had run out of praetors, they had run out of resources. There was only one man they could turn to. One man! And that man, that man was Crassus. So here's the thing. Nobody asked for more Crassus. That is absolutely true. The Senate did not ask for more Crassus. Spartacus certainly did not ask for more Crassus. The Senate kind of had to put their tails between their togas and unfortunately beg for more Crassus. (laughs) Crassus is like, my sandals, my toes are very dusty from the road. I feel like you should clean them. (laughs) With your tongues. Uh Uh-huh. Gross. So Marcus, like Kinius Crassus, was not popular with the Roman aristocracy. Or he wasn't popular with the chroniclers at the time. And Crassus comes down through history as what he was, kind of a massive douche. Don't piss off writers, okay? Because we will write about you. Oh, we will write about you. (laughs) If you have anyone in your life who's a writer, be very nice to that person. I'm just saying. Crassus would tell you. They might be telling your story in the future. Like the only way you're ever going to be remembered down through the ages is through what this person said about you. So be nice to writers. In our Julius Caesar series, we go in depth on who Crassus was. So I'm not going to give you too much unnecessary detail here. But that series was a while ago now, and everything that happened with Crassus in that arc happened after the Spartacus War. At this point, Crassus was a spry young 44 years old, and all that stuff with Julius Caesar had yet to happen. It was all in his future. Crassus at this point was something of an ingenue, you could say. Look, I want to be a fresh-faced, dewy-eyed 40-something. I'm okay with that. Crassus was not a member of the established aristocracy. His family was an old and respected plebeian family with a decent name. They were comfortable. Crassus didn't magically work his way up from the lower classes, but they were not wealthy and not a member of the powerful cliques in ancient Rome at the time. Crassus's father had been a censor and had a triumph, but it seems that he kind of led a rather modest life. According to Plutarch, who apparently is a huge source for this series, quote, Crassus was reared in a small house with two brothers. His brothers were married while their parents were still alive, and all shared the same table, which seems to have been the chief reason why Crassus was temperate and moderate in his manner of life. When one of his brothers died, Crassus took the widow to wife and had his children by her, and in these relations also he lived as well-ordered, a life as any Roman. Crassus, we can see from this paragraph, was raised to be modest, moral, and to know his place. There are a few redeeming-ish qualities to Crassus. One was that he was a genuine family man. He lived 
fairly modestly, I suppose, for someone who had as much money as he did. He even married his older brother's widow, which apparently was a thing, to allow her to retain her position in society and gain even more wealth. I guess, is that a redeeming quality? Like Maybe, assuming she was into it. Assuming that she wanted that, I don't know if this is a redeeming quality or not. I don't either. It could have just been that she had a better family name and he wanted it, so he took it. I don't know. Plutarch is trying to make that sound like a virtue. Well, I mean, I feel like there is something to be said for the status of women at this point in time and that your security in life was really tied to who your husband was. So, and you see this with Agrippina the Younger, certainly, like, as soon as you lose your husband, you might have to go back and live with your family, like your, you know, next male relative. You might not want to live with that person. I think in the case of, you know, Agrippina the Younger and Elder, that was a shit show because it was definitely possible that their next male relative had actually killed Germanicus. So, who knows? Yeah, Agrippina... The elder was put under the protection into the household of a man who she firmly believed killed her husband. I mean, he was in charge of every waking bit of her life. This was the reality for women. So it's possible if she liked him and he liked her, she didn't get a bad deal. Yeah, it's possible that this was the better option for her and he did this as a favor to her in memory of his brother. We don't know. We don't know if this is good or not. Plutarch seems to think it's great. Take that with a giant grain of salt. A guy telling us the history of women seems to think that this is a great deal, so. Right. (laughs) Anyway, what Plutarch is telling us about Crassus here is that he was raised to be modest and to know his place. But here's the thing. Crassus did not want to stay in his place. He was ambitious. And I think this is what really pissed people off about Crassus. His ambition did not really sit well with the Roman aristocracy. It was kind of seen as destabilizing. Like, these were people who were so status conscious that they wanted their clothes to speak of their social status. They wanted you to know who someone was and how high-ranking he was in the community just by looking at him. They were very conscious of status. Somebody moving status, from what I understand, was like, people did not know that, no, stop it. You're destabilizing the whole system we've got going on here. It's like, look, we're at the top, and if people think that they can come be at the top with us, they could knock us down, and that frightens us very much. I always feel like ambition, like in the ancient world, seems to be like a bad word. It's just like a dirty word. Like, he's ambitious. Oh my goodness. Especially if women are ambitious. Mm -hmm. But also in this instance, Crassus, he's got a lot that he wants to accomplish, and the Senate and the upper classes are like, God, new money, Crassus. Yeah, they did not want to let him into the cool kids' table. I mean, the thing about Crassus is that his ambition kind of got away with him. And he could be an absolute asshole in going after what he wanted. For instance, he wanted to buy the property of this lady who was a Vestal Virgin. She did not want to sell the property. She wanted to keep the property. And Crassus spent so much time harassing her to get her to sell him this property for dirt cheap that people totally thought they were doing it. They probably had a little doing it song. Like that. Doing it, doing it, doing it, doing it. It's a song about doing it with a vessel virgin, (laughs) and everyone sang it when Crassus walked by. Mm -hmm. As we've talked about before, Vestal virgins had two main jobs, to tend the flame of Vesta and to remain virgins. Their second job was to never, ever, 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 ever bone. No boning. That's right. That was their job. And, you know, for completing these jobs satisfactorily, they were given lots of rights denied to other women. So the charge of corrupting a Vestal virgin was a serious one. Vestal virgins were buried alive for having sex. So this was a really dangerous charge for Lycinia, who was the woman we're talking about. 
Men could also be killed for this crime. Sometimes they were scourged to death. The big thing is that Vestals got buried alive for this. So like having Crassus hanging around all the time was dangerous for Lycinia. Yeah. Anyway, Crassus managed to talk his way out of this charge. He told the judges that he wanted nothing to do with Lycinia. I mean, she's a Vestal virgin, guys. Come on. One of her two main jobs is to never, ever, 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 ever bone. Obviously, I don't want to bone her. I don't want to bone her. That feels like so much hard work when I don't have to work that hard to bone someone. All I'm actually doing this work for is to get her sweet, sweet, sweet villa. He wants that villa, Jen. He wants that villa in the worst way. But he doesn't want to pay like a proper price for it. No, he wants to get it for a discount. Absolutely. And Crassus's reputation as a cut-rate businessman, intent on getting the best deal for himself, actually saved him from being killed for defiling a Vestal Virgin. And it also saved Lycania, we're guessing. It also suggests by now this reputation of Crassus's was firmly in place. Also, he did not stop harassing poor Lycania until she agreed to sell him that property for the price he wanted to pay. If it wasn't for that fact, I would think, you know, maybe they actually were boning and this was Crassus's clever way of getting them both off the hook. But the fact that he still got her to sell him that property makes me think maybe maybe she's just like, fuck it, I don't even give a shit anymore. Fine. Have it. I just never want to see your face again, Crassus. She was so done. She was so done. Lycinia absolutely did not ask for more Crassus. I think she's specifically asking for not more Crassus. She's specifically asking for no more Crassus ever. So if there's one thing that anyone knows about Crassus, it's that this dude was filthy rich. He had stacks on stacks on stacks and then stacks on top of the stacks. That is what we know about Crassus. By the end of his life, his wealth had been estimated to be around 11 billion U.S. dollars in today's money. Plutarch claims that Crassus famously bragged that you couldn't say you were really rich unless you could fund your own army. And he made his fortune in a way the Roman aristocracy looked down on by engaging in some extremely shady real estate speculation. And by extremely shady, by Roman standards, it's the ancient Romans, they are the original mafia. If they think what you're doing is shady, like you are doing some real shady shit. So when Sulla, this goes back to Sulla, who's shocked here? Everything goes back to Sulla. Look, Sulla is a bag of worms and everything bad goes back to him. So when Sulla swept in and took charge of Rome for good around 82 BC, he instituted a wave of bloody prescriptions, publishing a list of his enemies and encouraging people to go out and murder them. Many of his enemies were rich senators who'd sided with Marius, and their murderers were rewarded by getting to keep their victims' wealth and property. I mean, for Crassus, this is a real win-win. Listen, Crassus knows an opportunity when he sees it. He just sniffs it out, and he's like, hello. Crassus's little ears picked up. He would have been how old, Jen? Oh, 30, 33? In his early 30s by then, yeah. About this time, it's about 10 years in the past that we're talking about, Crassus would have been a a positively embryonic 33 years old. (laughs) And he was happy to enthusiastically participate in the sullen prescriptions. So Crassus bought up valuable property for dirt cheap, and he was buying the property from someone who'd probably killed someone else to get that property to then sell it on to Crassus. That's what we're assuming. It's a little unclear from the Plutarch, but that's what it seems like. It's also sad that Crassus made a large chunk of his wealth by killing a rich person whose name wasn't on Sulla's list. Crassus just decided, I'm going to do a little murder, and then I'm going to posthumously add you onto Sulla's list. 
That's right. Sala completely looked the other way for this. He was fine with it. He's like, it's just another little murder. It's not someone I'm related to. I've got this whole worm thing going on. It's fine. Right. I'm busy managing my worms. (laughs) If you don't know the story of Sala, which I didn't know the story of Sala until Jenny told me, he was actually eaten alive by like intestinal worms. It's kind of crazy. We talk about it in our Julius Caesar series. Yeah. Another thing Crassus did to make his fortune was buying properties that were on fire or condemned, and we do mean actually, literally, on fire. Crassus then effectively flipped these properties and either sold them back to their owners, rented them out, and used them to make his fortune. So here's how Crassus's literally on fire scam worked. Ancient Rome was extremely flammable, so Crassus built himself his very own private fire brigade, made up of about 500 enslaved firefighters. This was the first fire brigade that was ever created, and note that it was private, and also people were forced to work in it, which is just not cool. Which doesn't surprise me at all, because the ancient world, as we've described so many times, was a massive trash fire. So here's how the scam worked. As soon as there was news of a fire, Crassus would sweep in, buy up houses that were already burning and houses that were in the path of the fire, which the owners would sell for just a ruinously small price. Like, not only is there a fire and it's going to burn your house up, here's this guy who's like, sell it to me now for a very, very, very small amount of money or you get nothing. Or just hope the wind turns, you know. It's up to you, buddy. Maybe the wind will turn, but look at all these guys I have here who could put it out. Theoretically. And then he put the fires out once the owners had agreed to sell. And if they didn't agree, he was like, just let it burn. I mean, geez, I wonder why people didn't like this guy. Can't imagine what it was about him that rubbed them the wrong way. It's a big mystery. Maybe it was just how he parted his hair. You know he's a total center part guy. Oh God, he must have been a total center part guy. I'm envisioning (laughs) it right now. So Crassus, for some reason, people did not like him. I cannot fathom why. After he bought people's houses under duress, he would repair the houses using a workforce of highly trained, enslaved builders and architects, and basically flip them. According to Plutarch, he came to own most of the city of Rome this way. While none of this was technically illegal under the laws of the time, although he might have been lighting those fires, which I guess that was illegal, and I'm going to just go out on a limb and say he was lighting those fires, Jen. I'm pretty sure throughout time, like, it has never been legal to light someone's house on fire. Like, I'm pretty safe, I think, saying that, right? Basically, Crassus was lighting these fires, and the upper classes did not like it. There's a line, okay? The aristocracy has a line, as shocking as it is to hear that. But Crassus was too rich to ignore. Members of the Senate were always trying to outspend each other to gain the public's favor, and many of them were constantly in debt. And we talk more about how that worked in the early Julius Caesar episodes. And if you needed an influx of quick capital, which basically everybody in the Senate needed that to, you know, every time there was an election coming up, there's Daddy Crassus with his open hand. He's always ready to lend you all the money you needed, as long as you were willing to do him a few small favors once you were elected. Nothing big. Yeah. If you were a friend of Crassus, he wasn't charging you interest. Right. So you wanted to be his friend, basically. If you had Daddy Crassus on your side, you could afford anything. You just do him a small favor every so often. If he wants you to pay him back, you better fucking pay him back. If you don't, things would turn ugly because the persistence with which Crassus would hound you would just actually drive you to ruin. I mean, I think like Kenia could tell you all about that. Poor like Kenia. So that's why Crassus was tolerated in their society, much like Pompey, 
but never fully accepted. Crassus was a necessary evil. He had more money than he could possibly spend in a lifetime, and if the Senate wanted funding, courting Crassus's favor was a must. So Crassus and Pompey were both sitting at the mean girls' table, trying to be like, and in their own ways, failing. Crassus also made his money through more conventional means. He owned silver mines and latifundias, and he traded in slaves. And Plutarch mentions that, by Roman standards of this time, Crassus was known for treating his enslaved workforce relatively well. Uh, But please don't be taken in by Plutarch saying this. If you're thinking that's, that's fine, and you're like, oh, wait, this means that Crassus actually isn't such a bad guy according to the time, well... No, no. Listen, there is no good way to be a slave owner. It shouldn't have to be said. Apparently, Plutarch thinks it should have to be said, so we're just going to say it for the ghost of Plutarch here. I don't know what his deal is, but anyway. There are even some caveats to what Plutarch is saying here. Plutarch was only really talking about Crassus's educated slaves. And his educated slaves are his household slaves and slaves who he taught a trade. We have no idea how Crassus actually treated the people who were working on his latifundias and in his silver mines or in his fire brigade. We don't know. Yeah, there is like a contrast here that might be worth noting if you haven't listened to our Servile War episodes, because in those episodes, we talk about how latifundia slaves are treated and they were frequently treated so badly that they weren't given, you know, adequate food, adequate clothes, shelter. So Plutarch saying, well, actually, Crassus was a really rich guy who treated his slaves relatively decently. Like, that would maybe separate him out from other people at his level. But again, he's not talking about his enslaved workforces on the latifundias and in the mines, which were notoriously horrific to work on. So we don't know. At least we don't think he's talking about them because he doesn't specifically reference them. So here's how Plutarch describes Crassus's treatment of his enslaved people. Quote, So many and so capable were the slaves he possessed. Readers, silversmiths, stewards, table servants, and he himself directed their education and took part in it himself as a teacher. And in a word, he thought that the chief duty of the master was to care for his slaves as the living implements of household management. Oh, God. Fucking Plutarch, stop trying to justify this. So Plutarch is telling us that Crassus's real wealth rested not just in the lands he owned, but in his enslaved workforce. Crassus took the time to educate his slaves so that they had a trade, whether that was smithing or bookkeeping or building. Crassus wanted his slaves to be able to add to his wealth and build his empire through their education. And let's be clear, he wanted to not pay them. He wanted to get the best rate of return on his investment. He wanted to make sure that he was getting his money's worth out of the people who he had enslaved. So before you get taken in and start thinking that this was a redeeming factor with Crassus, which I don't know how you could possibly think that, but just in case there might be someone out there who is, just remember, number one, it's still shitty to be a slave. That's obvious, but we just have to say it. And number two, Crassus was doing this for his own benefit. He was not doing this for the benefit of his enslaved workforce. He was doing it for himself. And this terrified the upper classes. Crassus, a man of infamous wealth, was essentially building his own little nation state of people loyal to him, who worked for him for free. And very soon, they thought he wouldn't need anything from them, the upper classes. And if he didn't need the upper classes, where did that leave them? The way the ruling classes saw it, Crassus was setting himself up as the king of his own small empire who had no need of anyone else's expertise, 
help, or approval. And this was a scary thought for the other senators in the Republic. Crassus had enough money and power to do whatever he wanted. He could be the next Sulla or Marius. If he wanted, he could fund his own armies to wipe out the Republic, and he had the skilled laborers to rebuild Rome and start again. There was only one thing that was keeping him kind of under their power. Yeah, it's that he was just not popular. People did not like him. And he wanted to be popular. Yeah, I mean, he threw money at the aristocracy and the lower classes, but he didn't have that charisma of Julius Caesar. He didn't have that common touch of maybe not burning people's houses down. (laughs) Like, I don't know how hard is this, Crassus? And this is why he was such fair game for Julius Caesar and Pompey later on. Caesar just, he had this, magnetism. He had the people in his pocket and he offered Crassus a little taste of that populist sparkle. And Crassus was like, I want more. (laughs) Oh man, everyone likes that sparkle. He's going to be so insufferable when we talk to him later. (laughs) So by the time the Spartacus War was really heating up, the Senate realized that they had, among all their other problems, a Crassus problem. They needed to get Crassus on their side. And maybe, just maybe, they wanted to give him a little project that would soak up some of that money, maybe bring him down a few pegs. So they offered him something he couldn't refuse. A chance at glory and fame and honor. They knew full well that fighting Spartacus's rebel army was not going to give anyone any honor and glory. So they had to have been selling this Crassus very hard. Well, and it also had to have been something that Crassus was like, yeah, this is just going to be like, you know, a piss take. It'll be super easy to sort out. And then they'll all be like, all these other praetors and consuls failed. But look at Crassus just sorted out one, two, three. I mean, the reality is that the aristocracy decides who gets the fame and the honor at the end of the day. They do. And remember, Crassus is at the very end of this table in his modest clothes with his ridiculous gold goblet. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Can I sit with you guys? If I can sit with you, everyone can have gold goblets. We don't like gold goblets, Crassus trappings of kingship. People get stabbed around here for that shit. So Crassus was well aware that he had an image problem. He knew that a lot of the upper classes just couldn't stand him. They hated his ambition, his success, and his wealth. And Crassus, deep down inside, really wanted to belong with this clique of aristocratic jerks. I feel like someone needs to sit Crassus down and tell him that there's life beyond middle school. Well, him and Pompey, and I feel like so many people in history, they make these choices that you're just like, and what would have happened if instead of trying to fit in, you just let yourself be who you are? He's 44 at this point in time, and he's still trying to play this game. To the Spartacus War came a new general, a general with unlimited resources, a general who really, really wanted to belong, a general with pretty much carte blanche to do what it took to take care of this little Spartacus problem, a general who really, really, really wanted to fit in. Pompey and the other celebrated Roman generals were busy mopping up wars and rebellions in Pontus and Spain. But Crassus knew that it wouldn't be long before they returned to Italy, and if he wanted to make a name for himself by himself, if he wanted to secure a triumph like his dad did, this was a big thing for Crassus, if he wanted to be loved and praised and petted and stroked and to be told that he was a pretty, pretty, pretty pony, if he wanted all that, Jen, he had to win this war, and quick, before Pompey swept in and took all the credit. So... 
The first thing Crassus had to do was raise his own army, and, as he so famously bragged, he could afford to feed, clothe, and arm his own legions, but now he had to put his money where his big fat mouth was. He had to go about actually making this a reality. At this point, Crassus had an advantage. Younger noblemen wanted to be in Crassus's army. They wanted to be involved. And Jen, I had a question about that. Why is that that there were people of the upper classes who wanted to sign up to be involved in Crassus's army? Sure. So I have an answer. Okay. So at this point in time, Crassus is trying to make a name for himself. And these younger nobles who either maybe their family lost some favor during the Salamarius Wars, maybe they were on the wrong side. Or maybe they were younger sons of senators and they wanted to make a name for themselves. They're in their 20s. They're in their early 30s. They're not necessarily the really established upper elite. No, and Crassus was a guy who was ambitious. He liked and respected other ambitious people. And he had so much money to fund your budding political career. He did, and he also knew that, like, the upper aristocracy was never going to be his buddy. But actually, here's a whole crop of people coming up that maybe he could own a little piece of. Maybe when he was ready to really take over the political power of Rome, what he was going to need was one of these young up-and-comers. So, yeah, he was an open door. The young, ambitious men wanted to join his army. They wanted to have face time with the most wealthy man in Rome. I mean, God, in a foxhole with him? What if you saved his life? What if the rest of your life, all you had to do is ask Crassus for a favor? You know who sounds like they would be a total shoe-in for this deal at this point in their career? I mean, it's so difficult. I can't think of someone who that would fit. It rhymes with freezer. Sleezer, freezer. Weezer. Have we ever found out what Julius Caesar was doing at this point? Now, I feel like he would be right all over this, right? I think so, too. And Julius Caesar has never told us. We keep asking him, and he keeps refusing to tell us and saying that a gentleman never tells what he was doing during the Spartacus War. Correct, Miss Williamson. A gentleman never tells what he was doing during the Spartacus War. I have a theory, Julius Caesar. Theories are like buses. You wait around long enough, and too many of them come in a row. One of them might be the one that you want to get on. How far can we stretch this bus metaphor? Not far enough for whatever theory you think you have, Miss Williamson. My theory is that you were, how old were you? Like in your 20s at this point? A gentleman never tells his age during the Spartacus War, Miss Williamson. Late 20s. And you were an up-and-comer, Julius Caesar. You were ambitious, blindingly ambitious. Julius Caesar has always been a meteorite. God, you're so fucking obnoxious. I can't even talk to you. I just keep trying to have a conversation with this dude, and this is what happens. So Julius Caesar, what I'm trying to say is that... Julius Caesar is not a dude, Miss Williamson. Oh, suck it. Oh, Miss Williamson, I'm leaving now. You have become rude and crude. (laughs) My theory is that Julius Caesar would have been all over this, like, fucking paint on plaster. Yeah, I totally agree. I imagine that jackass would have been like, hey, sign me up. Right, that's what I think. And we don't know what Julius Caesar was doing at this point in time. And he won't tell us. And to be honest, even if he did tell us, I would take it with a grain of salt because Julius Caesar is an infamous gaslighter. But Crassus needed more than aristocratic officers. He had to build his rank and file from scratch. And Crassus raised his army by paying people to join it. He was basically hiring people to be a part of his very own state-sanctioned private army. And this just shows you how desperate the Senate was to let him do this so soon after the Sulla and Marius Wars. I mean, technically, they're still fighting a war with Sertorius from the fallout of those wars. So this form of, like, 
conscription. Quick and dirty, kind of dangerous because it's consolidating your power under one person, form of conscription that is only done when there's an emergency. Right, Jen? Yeah, and this is something we only see during the Republic. Once Augustus comes in and the Empire begins, conscription and everything else are much more codified and take on a different meaning. So we're actually at the very end of this sort of conscription. So the form of conscription that Crassus used to build his army isn't the type of conscription we see later on in the empire, and it's not like the draft that we have today. In ancient Rome, around this time, individual generals could raise private armies for a set period of time to deal with some emergency, and then disband these armies once the war was over, or before anyone got any ideas about starting a civil war and marching into Rome and making themselves king, you know. Were people forced to join these armies, or did they volunteer? It was a little bit shaky. I feel like it was sort of forced paid volunteerism, depending, and we don't know exactly what Crassus used to get the people to join. But in this army, unlike when you did service for, like, the proper large larger military, where you served for like 16 years. In these private conscriptions, you served for about six years maximum. But it could be a lot less than that. Exactly. So individual wealthy generals like Crassus would raise these conscripts up quickly. Their units created equally quickly to take on a pressing and urgent foe. And then they could be disbanded just as quickly. Later on when we see like all the honors that Julius Caesar bestows upon his troops and legions and stuff like Crassus's legions probably didn't get that at the end of this war. So this was a huge problem for Crassus, actually. Sure, he could afford to raise an army, a huge army, actually. But quality does not equal quantity. The quality of men just kind of around and available for conscription in the Roman Republic right now was not high. Most of the battle-hardened, experienced men of military age were off fighting in Rome's foreign wars. And there's already been several rounds of this kind of conscription with other generals like Glaber and what's-his-name, the other guy. Cassinius. Right. So there's been several rounds of this already. So things are picked pretty clean right now. So Crassus's army was made up of raw new recruits, men who were either retired now and once again conscripted to service or men who'd been too young to hold a sword before their conscription. And like I said, there had already been a few rounds of this. So these are like teenagers who were like too young the last time. They were like, oh, you're 14. That's a little young. Come back to us. Oh, we're back two months later. Now you're 15. We'll take you. Or, you know, the senior citizens, not the super active senior citizens who still run marathons, but like senior citizens who just kind of sit on their couch and nothing wrong with that. But maybe they're not the best ones to pick if you're conscripting for an army. I don't know. We'll have to see. So right now, Spartacus had just slaughtered 300 Roman prisoners of war in a massive gladiatorial spectacle. And he was now marching straight toward Rome with an army of over 100,000 people at his back. He didn't necessarily want to attack Rome, but people didn't know that. They just knew that his, his direction that he was heading in was not looking favorable to them. Crassus did not have time to get a ragtag army made up of young boys and old men into shape. He didn't have time to coddle them. Well, he didn't have time to, like, craft them together. He had to, like, really raise them up and train them super. It was, like, epic boot camp now. Right. He didn't have time to give them, like, a six-month ramp-up period. Like, they needed to be able to fight now and do a relatively decent job against Spartacus's army, which was already experienced in the field. So his money could really only take him so far if there weren't people who were ready to fight already available for him to conscript. And the problem was that Spartacus, even for all his losses, was working with a pretty experienced, finely honed army at this point. 
They had spent a winter training as a unit, having weapons and armor made. They were starting to look and act like warriors. He did have a lot of non-combatants with him, but those who were fighting were actually pretty good at it now. Many of Spartacus's warriors had gained some experience fighting against the Romans already. At this point, Spartacus's army actually had the upper hand as far as experience went. Crassus was a cautious man. He'd made his money by being patient and exploiting the opportunities that were presented to him. And he had watched as other consuls and praetors had gone up against Spartacus and gotten their asses handed to them. R.I.P. Glabber's ass. All I want for Christmas is a Glabber ass. Lovely honey-baked ham with all the crackling. Beautiful, glazed. Is ham, is ham butt? No, it's from, it's from a pig. But isn't there a certain, it's rump. Rump is from, like, rump is, like, from a cow's butt. It's not human butt. I'm like, I'm trying to think of, like, where, like, there is a certain cut that is, that is butt. (laughs) I was like, what is, oh, it's a rump steak. There might be other things, too. I don't know, cracklins? Is cracklins the butt? Crackling is fat. That's, like, the fat layer that you have. And then, like, it, it gets all crispy. Can we move on? So, rather than immediately marching to meet Spartacus in the field, Crassus camped out in Picenum, roughly 150 miles northeast of Rome, and settled in to wait for Spartacus to come to him. And according to Plutarch, quote, Crassus took position on the borders of Picenum, expecting to receive the attack of Spartacus, who was hastening thither, and he set Mummius, his legate, with two legions, by a circuitous route, with orders to follow the enemy, but not to join battle or even skirmish with them. Mummius, however, at first promising opportunity, gave battle and was defeated. Many of his men were slain, and many of them threw away their arms and fled for their lives. So Crassus sent out Mummius, his legate or his deputy general, and two legions to follow Spartacus's army. He was like, listen, don't engage this guy. We're not ready, okay? All I want you to do... He's like, this is just scouting. I want you to see how big they are. That's right. I want to see, is Spartacus's army looking kind of hungry? Are they in bad shape? Are they looking healthy and strong? Like, how are they interacting? Is there internal conflict? What direction are they heading in? Just go out, observe... And do not blow your wad under any circumstances. And what did Mummyus do? He blew his wad. All over the fucking landscape. <laughs> shame, Mummyus, shame. So there was a good reason why Crassus wanted Mummyus to maybe control himself a little and not engage Spartacus in battle because they were not ready. Crassus was not this big of an idiot, okay? He knew his recruits were just getting adjusted to military life. They were not ready to take on Spartacus right away. And he feared their inexperience would lead to a defeat. I mean, duh, you know that's what's gonna happen. And last thing Crassus wanted was for the Senate to hear news of his army being defeated because defeated generals did not get triumphs like Crassus's dad. Defeated generals did not climb the social ladder. Crassus had to have only victories. Yeah, he had no room for defeats. That's right. He could not have any kind of a smudge on his reputation right now. He had to comport himself perfectly. Not with Pompey Shark just literally covering himself in glory. Pompey Shark has been doused in the sparkle up there in Spain. But military sparkle. God, he's so fucking obnoxious. God, Pompey Shark, fuck that dude. Like, Crassus is like, why didn't you send me to fight Sertorius in Spain? I know. But Mummies was also eager to prove himself. He wanted to show Crassus, the Senate, the world, that he was also up to the task of taking on Spartacus. The thing was, he might have been up to the task, but his legions certainly weren't. And not only were they defeated in battle, which would have been shameful enough, but they threw down their weapons and ran away. That was just the cherry on top of the shame cake right there. 
No, this is the cherry on top of the sheen cake. They let the enemy get their hands on good Roman steel. Expensive steel that Crassus had paid for. That just hits Daddy Crassus right in the wallet. That's bad. (laughs) This could not go unpunished. Crassus did not get good return on money here. Absolutely not. And see, now Crassus is pissed. Because Crassus has a discipline problem. He could not let his men see that such cowardly behavior was acceptable on the battlefield. If he couldn't instill a military mindset in these people quickly, he was done. He might as well just give up and go back. And he might as well just say goodbye to any chance of getting a triumph just like his daddy. Forget it. So Crassus turned to an archaic form of punishment to discipline his men and quickly put the fear of the gods in them decimation. So decimation was, as Plutarch says, an ancient form of punishment. We don't know a whole lot about its history prior to this, i.e. I did not Google it, but we can assume that it was discontinued because it was so extreme. Decimation means the removal of a tenth, and what it meant was that one in ten of the offending soldiers would be executed. So Crassus separated 500 soldiers out of Mummius's surviving force, the ones who had been the first to run the cowardly ones. From there, he divided them into 50 groups of 10 and had them draw lots. Those who drew the short straws or the black stone or whatever, we don't know what the lots actually looked like, were executed before everyone in the army. So I could explain to you what a decimation would look like, but I thought we would call on someone who has firsthand experience in this area. Yeah, we thought we'd call on someone who we're pretty sure witnessed this decimation and then used it as psychological torture later on when he was a general invading Gaul. So, Julius Caesar! Ms. Williamson? I have a question for you. Ugh, you always have a question, Miss Williamson. If it can't be answered in the commentaries, does anyone need to know it? I know, but then I can't just give you all this sweet, sweet attention. Don't you like it, Julius Caesar? Miss Williamson, this better be worth me pausing Flora's lava. <laughs> okay, I know that you might not like this question because it's a little traumatic, so I'm going to pour you a glass of Flernian. Only the good Flernian, Miss Williamson. Not that cheap rate stuff you and the other one drink. Who do you think you're talking to? Only the best for you. I should hope so. Here you go, Julius Caesar. Acceptable? Oh, that is a fine vintage, Miss Williamson. Well found. I want to ask you what a decimation was like. One does not talk about decimations in mixed company. It's just me and Jen and 5,000 of our closest (laughs) friends. (laughs) Miss Williamson, decimation was... It is one of the most traumatic things that I witnessed in my early years. Tell me how it would go down. Well, if one had been in Crassus's army and one had seen a decimation, one imagines that said decimation looked exactly like this. Men would be divided into units of ten, and whoever drew the short straw. You're not telling me I haven't anything I haven't already said. I must set the scene, Miss Williamson. I'm going to allow you to set the scene. <laughs> Jen's over in the corner laughing at you. I'm sorry, but you're doing a great job. That's why the other one doesn't ever get to have conversations with me. Jen has conversations with you all the time. What are you talking about? I don't talk to the other one. I only talk to you. Really? Because I have recorded instances of you talking to both of us. No, I ignored her. She's like one of those buzzing little flies. Oh my god, you're literally using her mouth to talk right now. Shall I tell you the story? You're going to continually grate on my nerves. Both? (laughs) She didn't know better than to ask a question I knew the answer to. So once these men had been broken into these small groups, it was time to do the actual decimating. And you must understand, Miss Williamson, I know it's very difficult for you because you didn't live through it, that men in the army formed 
A sort of bond, a group. We fought together as one unit, one small group of maybe eight to ten people. They were called to come to Burnium. They shared a tent. They shared meals. They shared their lives together. We were one unit. If one of you succeeded, then all of us succeeded. If one of you failed, then all of us were punished. So we were invested in making sure that we could be the best that we could be. Think about a Tortuga. Your shield buddies, you had to trust them with your life. Like the guy next to you is going to hold up that shield to shelter you. And you're going to hold up your shield to shelter the next guy. The shield wall had to be so tight up above that a horse could ride across it. Absolutely, Miss Williamson. If you do not have a tight Tortuga, then you have nothing. You cannot advance if you do not advance together. So this punishment was particularly traumatic to witness, should one have witnessed it, because it involved men being beaten to death, sometimes with clubs, sometimes with their bare hands, sometimes with sticks or stones, by their fellow men. The one person who'd drawn that short straw, they were put into the middle and everyone went around them and they beat them to death until they were covered in the blood of their own fellow soldier. The shame and horror of this. Oh, it was something else to behold. The legions, once they were decimated, if you walked away as someone who had had your life preserved by not pulling that short straw, you were still irrevocably changed. And there was punishment to be had. Your legion would be disbanded. Your honors, your eagles, your standards would be taken away from you. You would be sent outside of camp for a period, depending on how bad your crime was of anywhere from two days to two weeks to two months, you would be laughed at and mocked. And when you were brought back in, you were brought back in as men who had served without honor. That sounds awful. Did you ever do this in your own army? I came close many times. But Julius Caesar, unlike that scoundrel Crassus, has a way with people. Julius Caesar is well able to handle some wayward legions. I remember there was this one time this one legion begged you to decimate them. Are you talking about the ninth? Oh, those naughty little schoolboys. Yeah, I think I am. Or maybe it was the 10th. I forget. I'd have to go back into the commentaries. So this has happened more than once is what you're telling me. It's happened before, but as far as my recollections, never for anything as shameful as throwing down your weapons and running away. Well, I mean, there was the beginning of the Gallic Wars when people didn't want to march over there where you wanted them to march to because they were like, oh, the forests are too vast. They were too vast. And you knew that once you went into one of those forests, Miss Williamson, that you were very vulnerable on all sides from attack. I mean, these were quite intelligent men who were following with me. They were intelligent enough to know that if I decimated them, it would be a lot worse than if they walked through the forests. I mean, how many men do you stand to lose in the forest versus in a decimation? One in 10 versus one in 50 versus one in 20? I don't know. I'm not a math person. Once you've decimated like that, yes, you pull your army together, but you no longer lead them as someone that they can relate to, as someone that they respect and admire and look up to and want to give their lives for. Now you lead through fear. And when you lead through fear, it's a very different form of leadership. It's effective in the short term, but in the long term, it's much better to have their admiration and their love. Well, that's the thing. It's like Crassus right now needed it in the short term. So he needs to rule through fear. 
Yeah, so essentially, Crassus was like, don't have time to inspire love. I'm going to lead through fear. And he decided that his legions were going to serve him with honor. And they would die if that's what their gods had planned for them, but they would not run away from a fight. They would not throw down their weapons and lose all that hard paid for Roman steel and run away like a bunch of scared children. They were legionaries and they were going to live and die by their swords. Julius Caesar, what were you doing during the Spartacus War? Were you in Crassus's army? Did you see this decimation? Is that why you didn't want to instigate a decimation in your own army? Julius Caesar will still not tell you what he was doing during that Spartacus War. You know that, right? This is all hypothetical. So while Crassus was busy killing people in his own army so that they would fear him, I wonder why people don't like Crassus. I still can't get my head around that. I can't get my head around why Crassus wasn't as popular as Pompey and Julius Caesar. I just can't figure out why. He seems to have a personality problem. So while Crassus was busy with that, Spartacus was marching towards Rome. After the death of Crixus and the epic funeral games, Spartacus came up with a new plan. Despite the rather ominous direction he was marching in right now, his goal was not to attack Rome. He wasn't in a good position to do that. He'd lost both his Gallic and Germanic troops. He needed new recruits. And to get the kind he needed, freed slaves who were highly motivated to kill Romans, he looked to Sicily. According to Plutarch, his plan was to, quote, kindle anew the servile war there, which had not long been extinguished and needed only a little additional fuel. And this was not a bad plan. Sicily, the island just off the coast of southern Italy, was full of latifundias, and a large portion of the population, probably about one in three or 200,000 people, were enslaved on those latifundias. We talk more about that in our episodes on the Servile Wars. It had been only about 29 years or so since the last Servile War, and no doubt there were still thousands of enslaved people on this island with a seething hatred of Rome and memories of the last Servile War. Maybe even people who'd fought in that war and had been re-enslaved. Not to mention that the island was defensible. It was the perfect home base for Spartacus's revolution. All Spartacus needed to do was land on Sicily with about 2,000 warriors, so discontent, recruit and slave people to his cause, overthrow the entire island, and then turn it into his base camp. I mean, super easy. That bujo basically writes itself. That bullet journal is like tick, tick, tick. I don't see how any of this could go wrong. So Spartacus made his way down the boot of Italy, dodging Crassus's army as he made his way to the Straits of Messina. This is down by sort of the toe of Italy. He could actually wave to Sicily and be like, hi guys, we're coming for you. So all Spartacus needed to do was find someone who could get him and 2,000 of his closest warrior friends across the straits. So here's where the pirates enter our story. Spartacus struck a deal with Cilician pirates. He offered them gifts, paid them whatever they asked for, and then the Cilician pirates, well, they kind of did what pirates do best. They betrayed Spartacus and sailed right the fuck away with all the booty he'd gifted them. Crassus definitely bribed them to do that. But also, like, they're pirates. <laughs> this was a huge blow for Spartacus and his followers, and now they were in serious trouble. They were very exposed on the tippity-tippity-toe Italy. And Crassus was starting to close in. They had to head for someplace safer. According to Plutarch, Spartacus marched his force to the peninsula of Regium, right on the toe of the boot. We don't know why he went there exactly. Plutarch doesn't give us that many details, but this was definitely high ground. It's possibly he was trying to flee to a more defensible place. We don't know. We do know that when Crassus and his army saw where Spartacus had retreated to, Crassus devised a devious fucking plan. 
Unlike the others who'd come up against Spartacus, Crassus took Spartacus seriously. He knew his army's limitations, and he knew that Spartacus was smart and a very worthy opponent, so he figured that the best way to defeat Spartacus was to catch him in a trap rather than fight him in open battle. So here's how Crassus's trap went down, again, according to Plutarch. Quote, Crassus now came up and determined to build a wall across the isthmus, thereby keeping his soldiers from idleness and his enemies from provisions. Now the task was a huge one and difficult. But he accomplished and finished it, contrary to all expectation, running a ditch from sea to sea through the neck of land, 300 furlows in length and 15 feet in width and depth alike. Above the ditch, he also built a wall of astonishing height and strength. So let's break down what happened here. Crassus realized that he could very easily trap Spartacus. Basically, wall Spartacus and his army in on the toe of the boot of Italy. All he had to do was build a ditch across an isthmus that Spartacus and his followers were already kind of encamped on, bottling them in. And once the ditch was finished, there would be no way out without going through Crassus's soldiers. Spartacus and his followers would run out of food, and Crassus and his army could swoop in and destroy the rebels once they were good and weak from hunger and exposure, which wouldn't take long because winter was coming. It was about November at this point in time, and Spartacus and his army were in the mountains. So there are a few reasons to side-eye Plutarch's account. For one thing, building a ditch and wall 35 miles long would have been a Herculean feat for any army, not to mention an army of newbies rather than battle-hardened war engineers, and they would have had to do it very fast in difficult terrain. Historian Barry Strauss posits that this plan was hatched by Crassus while Spartacus was negotiating with the Sicilian pirates. He says, quote, some historians turn Crassus's plan into a modest project, no 35-mile-long set of fortifications, no willingness to give up a 1,000 square miles to the enemy. In their view, Crassus went toe-to-toe with Spartacus from the outset by marching ever southward, practically up to Spartacus's camp on the street. So there is some question about where Crassus's fortifications were and how close they were to Spartacus's camp. Because to get really close to Spartacus's camp, they would have had to be like way up in these mountains in very difficult terrain. It would have been hard to build a big wall and ditch there. The Romans fortified the ravines and the steep hills above the Tyrrhenian coast to cut the rebels off, no more than a mile or two away from Spartacus's camp, according to Barry Strauss. The result would have been a line of fortifications about a mile long. While his men negotiated with pirates and built rafts, Spartacus could see the Romans nearby, practically breathing down his neck. So that is how Barry Strauss envisions it. I don't know if he could see the Romans and they were breathing down his neck while he was negotiating with the pirates, but I do think it's reasonable to believe that Crassus's army was very, very close to Spartacus's camp. And we're going to get into why. To get a sense of this, you have to understand the terrain. The isthmus Spartacus was trapped on was dominated by a feature called the Melia Ridge. This is a tabletop ridge that rises approximately 3,000 to 4,000 feet above sea level. On three sides, cliffs drop straight down into the sea. Straight in front, the land would have been virtually impassable, riddled with high, rocky glens and vast gorges. Crassus would have had to build walls and ditches only in a few strategic places where the land was passable. Spartacus and his men were stuck on the Melian Ridge, and this would have been a throwback to the siege on Mount Vesuvius. Spartacus was stuck with his army on flat, exposed, high ground with few resources. Plutarch tells us that Spartacus was scornful when he heard about Crassus coming to trap him in the mountains. After all, as a Thracian, the mountains were Spartacus's natural environment, and he'd beaten Romans in them once before. But this time, the situation was more dire than it was on Mount Vesuvius. 
First, because there was no repelling out of this one, sheer cliffs on three sides dropped from the ridge to the sea. But even in places where there might be a beach to stand on, the Romans controlled those beaches. And second, it wasn't summertime anymore. It was November. Winter was closing in. So I want to stop for a second and tell you some interesting facts that Jen came across in Barry Strauss's The Spartacus War. Barry Strauss tells us that many of the place names around Melia Ridge, which is definitely still there today, you can go there. I would like to go hiking on it. Some of the place names around the ridge actually call back to the time of the Spartacus Rebellion. So this is a quote from Barry Strauss. Quote, The origin of place names is notoriously difficult to pin down, but even so, several places in and around the Melia Ridge have evocative names. A section of the ridge is known as the Plains of Marco, leading down into Marco's Ridge. Is that named for Marcus Licinius Crassus? I don't know. Marco's a pretty common name, but maybe? Maybe. So to the west, there's a town called Scrofario, which might have been named after Crassus's lieutenant, Scrofa. To the east are hamlets of Casse Romano, Roman houses, and Contrada Romano, or Roman neighborhood, and a place called Torre Lociavo, which is the slave's tower. So there you have it, the echoes of an ancient siege in the modern world. Crassus has set his trap, and Spartacus was surrounded, with the ditch and wall before him, and Roman armies controlling the beaches on all three sides. Spartacus and his army fought back the only way they could— by hurling abuse and insults at the Roman army that surrounded them. And then, Spartacus brought in a little psychological warfare, crucifying a Roman prisoner in the no-man's land between the two armies. He did it to infuriate Crassus, but also as a reminder to his army of what would happen to them if they fell to Crassus. See, this is a point where I do think that Crassus's army was really close to Spartacus's army. Because how are they going to yell insults at each other if they're not that close? Well, and there's some other stuff we're going to find out that, to me, they had to be this close. But even isolated and hemmed in by the Roman army, rumors reached Spartacus's camp of what was going on in the outside world. Crassus was under pressure to wrap this up. The Senate had heard about Mummius's defeat, and they were planning to send another general to help Crassus. Because it was clear to them that Crassus couldn't manage to end this little rebellion on his own. And the general of the Senate was planning on recalling was Pompey the Great. Pompey Shark. Crassus was not a fan of Pompey Shark. I'm going to tell you why. If you haven't picked it up already from our drunken rantings about it. They had a rivalry that had been fueled by Sulla. According to Plutarch, quote, For although Pompey was the younger man, and the son of a father who had been in ill repute at Rome and hated most bitterly by his fellow citizens. I don't know, because maybe his name was... Strabo the Butcher. (laughs) And nobody liked that guy. Maybe Strabo the Butcher had been struck by lightning, so even the gods didn't like that guy. Even the gods hated Strabo the Butcher. Still, in the events of this time, Pompey Shark's talents shone forth conspicuously, and he was seen to be great so that Sulla paid him honors, rising at his approach, uncovering his head, and saluting him as Imperator. Pompey was such a talented fucking general that the Senate was still just, like, bowing down to him and kissing the hem of his toga, even though they hated his dad. But Crassus, even though his dad was, you know, pretty well-respected, even got a triumph that one time, nobody was giving him that treatment. Nobody was giving him that treatment. He and Pompey were both outsiders, but, like, the Senate was giving Pompey all these honors that Crassus was not being given, and he was just so jealous about it, he could not fucking stand it. And just the sheer fury that he would feel at the guy being sent in to bail his ass out with the Spartacus War being Pompey Shark of all fucking people. 
That had to make Crassus so goddamn mad. Because you know what? Crassus just wanted to be Crassus the Great. He didn't necessarily want to be Crassus the Wealthy. Because, like, for him, making money wasn't difficult. Like, he just mastered his art of his shady dealings. So he didn't want to be known just for being wealthy. He wanted to be admired for being a great general, for being a good leader, for being a great speaker. And, you know, you always want to be loved for the things that you're not good at, don't you? you it always feels better when someone's like, oh, you're so good at this thing that you always thought you were terrible at, you know? I guess. I don't know. I always feel like the things that, like, I'm quite good at, it's like, oh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, no, I know I'm good at that. Sometimes you take it for granted. Exactly. Anyway, I'm trying to get through this quote from Plutarch, and he agrees with us here. He says that all of this inflamed and goaded Crassus, although it was not without good reason that Sulla thus made less of him. He can't resist just needling Crassus in this. I love it. Just twist the knife. I'm telling you guys, don't piss off writers. So, as we said, the idea that Pompey Shark was going to return to Rome and sweep in and rob Crassus of the glory of defeating Spartacus just pissed Crassus off like next level. So, Crassus decided to write to the Senate and ask them to send two generals. This was meant as a slight to Pompey. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty obvious slight. Tell us how it worked, Jen. So Crassus told the Senate that this war was so big and so tricksy and so difficult to win that only two extra generals could actually turn the tide. I mean, one would just be like that consul and praetor nonsense we had earlier. Right, you can send Pompey if you want, I guess, but I need a specialist. I need you to go to Thrace and get me a specialist. So he asked the Senate to send both Pompey, if you must, and a specialist general called Lucullus, who just spent months fighting the Bessi in Thrace. Essentially, he was making a point of showing Pompey that a specialist was needed here, not a teenage butcher. Someone who really understood what it was like to fight Thracians, not sort of have great tapas food while dealing with rebelling Sertorius in Spain. We have a Thracian problem here. We need a Thracian specialist. Yeah, and Spartacus was a Thracian, and this war was a real Thracian problem. And everyone knows that Thracians are really serious and they're really good fighters. So somehow, despite the fact that Spartacus was trapped on a freezing ridge with no way in or out, he found out about Crassus's big rivalry. And he realized that he might have a chance to end this war quickly and get what he wanted and get off this fucking ridge, albeit a long shot. So Spartacus sent Crassus a treaty, which laid out his demands and what he would offer to secure a peace. And this was entirely unheard of. Spartacus was speaking to Crassus like a general in another army, not like an escaped slave. He was agreeing to lay down his arms as long as Crassus, in good faith, adhered to his demands. If Crassus agreed to Spartacus's demands, then Crassus would effectively become Spartacus's patron. The war would end with a handshake between two men as equals and a bond of friendship. Okay, hold up a second. Is Spartacus just asking for Crassus to be part of his Patreon right now? Exactly. He's like, <laughs> hey, Crassus, if you join us at the um, 10,000 talent level, I mean, <laughs> I'll end the war for one month. <laughs> the nards on that guy. I love it. I love it so much. Crassus, you can join at the 10,000 talent level. We'll stop fighting you for every month that you pay up. <laughs> And, you know, every three months we do an AMA and a giveaway. It'll be great. You'll love it. <laughs> Maybe we'll give you an extra episode. Let's do some extra content. 
filming all my Thracian warriors doing battle exercises. Calisthenics. Oh my goodness. He could make a fortune. Thracian calisthenics. Oh my God. I would pay as much money as I could possibly summon to watch that shit. Spartacus, I'm just informing you that there's a market. He could give you like an exercise calendar that's like, work out like a gladiator, work out like a Thracian. Spartacus, you know how much I love calendars. You know how much I love knowing exactly what I'm going to do from day to day with regard to my exercises and my calisthenics. So anyway, Crassus, he was, listen, he was not going to join Spartacus's Patreon. This is not going to happen. Crassus is like, I got my abs the Roman way. <laughs> there are two specific reasons why. Reason one, Spartacus was a slave. This is how Crassus saw him. And he can't treat with someone so far below his social class. Not only that, but Crassus could not start treating slaves like people. Otherwise, it was going to upend the entire slave economy of ancient Rome by giving enslaved people dangerous ideas about their worth. And if they just make enough trouble, we'll actually treat them like people. No, that was a dangerous message to send to the one in three people throughout the Roman Republic at this time who were enslaved. He couldn't do it. And two... Spartacus and his army had already done too much damage for this war to end with anything short of Spartacus's head hanging outside the rostra. The Senate was out for blood right now. I just love the idea, Jen, of Spartacus sending this peace treaty knowing full well that Crassus is not going to accept the terms. Like, he's not going to join the Patreon. Spartacus knows he's not going to join the Patreon. He's still sending that email that he knows is going to just piss Crassus right the fuck off. Exactly. That's essentially when we were talking about this episode and what our cold open would be. This was the scene I kept coming back to. I was like, man, this is, to me, one of the big moments in Spartacus's story where he goes from being the small Spartacus, which is a man rebelling for himself, to the large Spartacus, the man making a point about his people behind him. This missive that the Romans were so furious about echoes down to us, and it's a missive that is all about hearing us as people and hearing our demands, even though he knows not a shot in hell Crassus is going to listen to any of this. We don't actually know what the demands were. No, but Crassus wasn't going to acknowledge any of them. And we don't actually know what was in Spartacus's head, whether he thought that Crassus would accept these demands or not. I think it was twofold. I think it served both purposes. This is like taking a dump on teacher Crassus's desk. And also, most importantly, you know, the fact that he wrote this and tried to treat with his enemies at a point wherein it looked like all hope was lost. Like, to me, that is so fucking important. And what he was asking for was to be seen and heard as an equal. And of course, the Romans were never going to do that. But we don't know why Spartacus did anything. And I feel like I keep pounding that drum because there's so much we put on that story. And we put on that story things that maybe were there, maybe weren't there. But it's so tempting to fill in the gaps. I always fall on the side of large Spartacus. I always fall on the side of the movement because that is where I'm interested. I'm more interested in small Spartacus. Yeah. I tend to want to shy away from making him a symbol because to me that feels like erasing Spartacus, the real person who might have been more flawed than that. I feel the opposite when we assume that he doesn't have some of those larger values and doesn't feel that he's not speaking for the, a movement at this point in time. We're erasing what he might have been trying to accomplish here and making it so that we're only seeing a smaller part of him the way the Romans would have seen it. 
Maybe because the Romans were writing the story. So we're stuck with their story, unfortunately. And I think this argument is really important and I'm glad we're having it. I'm really glad that you you prefer looking at it from the small Spartacus and I prefer coming at it from the large Spartacus because we will never know why he did this. And I think both are valid. And I think it's important to see both because he's a complicated individual. Yeah. So let's get to what actually happened. Crassus knew he had the upper hand. The enemy was bottled into a place where he couldn't possibly survive for the long term. They were running out of food, and right now it was fucking snowing again. There was no way Crassus was going to say yes to this ridiculous missive from Spartacus, whatever it said. When the enemy was already starving and shivering on the high ridge with no shelter, no food, no reinforcements. By the time the thunderstorm was over, there was no doubt that Spartacus would be coming down off that ridge begging to surrender. Fuck this note. He's going to beg me on his hands and knees to surrender if he lived through this night at all. But while Crassus was sitting all smug in his tent, waiting for Father Christmas to come and deliver him his present, which is Spartacus, on his hands and knees begging for forgiveness, Spartacus and his men snuck up to one of those trenches under the cover of the storm, filled it in with branches, cattle, dead Roman prisoners, and then crossed the trench and fled to safety. Once again, Spartacus had evaded capture. And Crassus was furious. Spartacus's full army, or maybe only two-thirds of it, or a third of it, we don't know, it's very dodgy, had one more close call with Crassus's army before their final showdown. Not long after this, Spartacus and his army were camped out by a lake in Lucania, about 250 miles northeast of Melia Ridge. And Crassus's army attempted to sneak up on them, and they were almost successful. So the only reason that they weren't was because a group of women were off on their own attending to their monthly rituals. We're going to get to what we think monthly rituals are in a second, but they saw some of Crassus's scouts sneaking up, and the women raced back to Spartacus's camp, alerted Spartacus and his men, and once again, Crassus's army was looted. Spartacus slipped through his fingers. So I had seen this fact in the ancient historians and in some of the modern historians, and I had just assumed that, I think Plutarch says like they were saying their prayers to their gods or something. I was like, oh, that's cool. Some women saw the scouts and they turned the tide. And I didn't really understand what it was until our amazing conversation with the partial historians. That was eye-opening, that conversation. It was so eye-opening to talk to historians who were looking at the Spartacus story from a real different lens. They were feminists like we are, and they exploded this moment, and they explained to us what the women were doing. Jen, I think Dr. Rad is the only historian I know who is a feminist historian specializing in Spartacus. She's the only one I know. She's absolutely brilliant. If you're not following the partial historians, go listen to them. They are feminists, but they're also actually academics, which we are not. So they have like a much more in-depth perspective on this stuff. And we had them on our podcast to talk about Spartacus and popular culture. But of course, it went into a lot of other topics as well. And it's an amazing episode. Yeah. So this fact in particular, as I said, I kind of glossed over. I was like, oh, well, that's cool. I'll definitely put it in because women getting to do some thing. What a great thing. And Dr. Rad explained that actually these women had removed themselves from the rest of the camp because they had their period. And we don't know exactly what their monthly sort of rituals they did when they had their periods were, but we do know that whatever their rituals were, it called for them to be a little bit away from camp. And that's how 
they saw Crass as the scouts. Yeah, and that's so fascinating because I've done a lot of reading about Celtic culture and I've never seen any reference to what women did during their periods and what the rituals around that were. So this is just a teensy little sliver of a possible clue about that. And it's like just a little slice of these women's lives that isn't told anywhere else. And I think that that is really cool. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where I think last season we had the Explorers on and she talked a little bit about what it's like just looking at the day-to-day life of women in different time periods. And it is one of those things where I think you, Jenny, you had a question like, well, what was it like to go to the bathroom in ancient Egypt? And it's like, I never think about, I'm not interested in that. I'm like, who was screwing who? And who was poisoning who? And what was happening here? And which gods were in and which gods we're out like that's where my brain goes yeah i'm actually really interested in day-to-day experiences because those really shape people's thinking and people's possibilities a lot of the time and in this case they actually shaped history i mean kate the explorers would love this shit that time getting your period saved spartacus's army yeah so let's talk about what happened next so around this time spartacus's army split up again And we conjecture that many in his army felt that Spartacus's leadership was seriously lacking. We don't know, but we could guess. How had he walked into that trap on Melia Ridge? Why had he trusted the pirates? He could have just killed them and took their ships, honestly. All of their current problems, all of their close calls were because Spartacus was acting way too noble. He kept trying to treat with Roman scum and getting them to see him as people. It's just a lost cause, Spartacus. Give it up. They're never going to do that. The only way to talk to a Roman is with your sword. These are the clues that we're getting from what we're seeing in history. And what we know about these cultures. And, you know, what do we know about Celtic and Germanic and Thracian cultures, John? That might also be in play here based on how Spartacus organized his army and and distributed his wealth. So what we know is that, and we saw it in the last episode, Spartacus felt that no one person got to keep all their gold. He wanted everything pooled together so that he could administer what the money was spent on. And that money was spent on making sure everyone had the same good weapons. It's not just that the best warriors had swords and anyone who wasn't a good warrior, maybe we could teach him to be a slinger and maybe they could have some stones. No, everyone was going to have the same opportunity to live and die by a sword. Everyone was going to get fed, regardless of whether or not they were out there killing 200 Roman soldiers in a day or they were back home making the soup. This pooling of resources really rubbed these proud warrior cultures the wrong way. You know, Gannicus and Castus came from cultures, and so did Spartacus, where the more gold and goods and resources you brought into your tribe, the more highly respected you were. And many of the men and women who followed them felt the same way. Yeah, I mean, the way that you built up your status in a Celtic or Germanic or Thracian society was by raiding and taking other people's stuff and amassing your own wealth. So some of these people might have seen Spartacus's taking of their spoils as an overreach. Absolutely. And the other thing that they saw as an overreach, and we saw this with Crixus when his army split up, is they didn't see why they had to pay people for things they could just take. Like, it absolutely made no sense. Why are we paying for the pirates to, like, give us their ships? We just take the ships. We're stronger. We're able to do that. So we take what we want. And that's it. From a purely pragmatic perspective, I see their point. (laughs) The pirates are just going to betray you anyway. Maybe I'm the asshole here. Am I the asshole? I'm going to go on Reddit and ask. Am I the asshole for just taking the pirates' boats when I know they're going to betray us anyway? And I think this is where we see Spartacus through the Roman lens. Because Spartacus over here, and we don't know how he felt, he might have felt a similar way. But what we see from the Roman writers is that Spartacus felt really strongly that 
they should try and pay for the stuff that they wanted because he wanted to be respected and he wanted his people to be seen as people. That's why he paid the pirates. That's why he paid people to make his swords and everything else as opposed to just enslaving someone and making them do it. And again, this is from the Roman lens. We don't actually know that this is what happened. And obviously Plutarch and Sallust, who are two of the more complete sources, are giving us something that puts Spartacus in a certain light. We don't actually know that that's true. In the historical record, where Plutarch and even where Sallust tells us, because we have a little bit of Sallust, which we read in the last episode, where those, those chroniclers tell us that Spartacus was trying to build an organized group where they could treat with people and pay people and pay merchants and negotiate on an equal level. He was trying to build their group up so they could do that and be trusted to do that. If they wanted to do that, they had to not kill everybody that tried to bargain with them or sell them something. So that gives me sort of a clue that maybe they were trying to establish a certain equality with the Romans and Spartacus at least really cared about that. It's possible that at this point in time, Spartacus felt like the people following him were part of his tribe. And what he wanted now was for them to carve out a place that was their homeland and they could be respected in whatever that place was. We don't know because they don't tell us. Anyway, so this was a point where Spartacus's army split up again. Gannicus and Castus and about 30,000 Celts, or maybe 3,000 or whatever, the numbers are extremely fuzzy. They're as fuzzy as Denny's floofy cat Heloise. <laughs> yeah, that's very fuzzy. So anyway, Gannicus and Castus and um, a large number, let's just say, of Celts broke away from Spartacus's army. Maybe it was because they didn't like how Spartacus wanted them to redistribute their wealth. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. And they played right into Crassus's hands when they did it. Here's what happened, according to Plutarch. Quote, Crassus determined to attack those of the enemy who had seceded from the rest and were campaigning on their own account. They were commanded by Gannicus and Castus, and with this in view, sent out 6,000 men to preoccupy a certain eminence. This is how he says to take the high ground. Bidding them keep their attempt a secret. And they did try to elude observation by covering up their helmets, but they were seen by two women who were sacrificing for the enemy and would have been in peril of their lives had not Crassus quickly made his appearance and given battle, the most stubbornly contested of all. For although he slew 12,300 men in it, he found only two who were wounded in the back. The rest all died standing in the ranks and fighting the Romans. Okay, so can we break that down? Because I feel like there's another instance where women sounded the alarm, and I'm interested in that. Yeah, so this instance, I'm not sure if I've confused the two instances. It could be the same instance is what I'm saying, but I don't think so because one of the instances involved Spartacus and I feel like this is a different instance, but it's unclear. And again, we're working on incomplete sources. They could be the same instance and it's a little unclear. Fuzzy, I'm a little drunk. I might've confused it. I want to actually break down Plutarch here because he's telling us a lot. So what he's telling us here is that Crassus and his army snuck up on the Celtic forces, which had been led by Gannicus and Castus. They were spotted by women who ran back to warn Castus and Gannicus, but they didn't get there quite soon enough. Castus and Gannicus's army died bravely fighting the Romans. They were brave Celtic warriors to the end. They did not run from battle as Mummius's men had. Of all the brave warriors who died in this battle, only two were wounded in the back, meaning almost none of them ran away. I mean, that must have infuriated Crassus. Here's this rebel army who were enslaved people who have fought better than his soldiers. 
fought in that first battle. Yeah, that must have pissed him off a lot, considering he didn't want to treat them like people. He didn't want to treat them like people. He just assumed they'd rock up and they'd run away, and then he'd be like, aha, we've caught all these former slaves running and fleeing and not standing like warriors and properly fighting. And they just said, no, we're warriors till the end. So by now, the clock was really ticking for Crassus as well as Spartacus. Pompey was like almost on Italy's shores, and Crassus, he needed that win. So meanwhile, Spartacus had escaped to the mountains of Petilia, down in the ball of the foot of the boot. Oh my goodness, I can't believe I got there. It's like the ball of your foot is where this is right now. It's not the tippity tiptoe tiptoe. It's the ball of the foot. So Spartacus had managed to defeat another one of Crassus's officers, or maybe legates, a guy named Quintus. And according to Plutarch, quote, This success was the ruin of Spartacus, for it filled his slaves with overconfidence. They would no longer consent to avoid battle, and would not even obey their leaders, but surrounded them as soon as they began to march, with arms in their hands, and forced them to lead back through Lucania against the Romans, the very thing which Crassus also most desired. What Plutarch is telling us here is that Spartacus had lost control of his army again. He didn't think he could win an open battle against Crassus, but his troops were all full steam ahead and there was nothing he could do to stop them. Well, hang on for a second. This is very similar to what happened after most of the German legions were destroyed. His army once again said, fuck it, they're killing all of us. We want to just go kill as many Romans as we can kill, right? We saw this when he marched back down from the Alps after Crixus's massive defeat. Sure, I mean, maybe. What I'm saying is there's a symmetry here. Every time Spartacus's army faces a massive defeat, Plutarch tells us, and this does not mean that it's true, that Spartacus's army then kind of wants to go out for blood again. You know, I think you're right. Like, this is a real pattern we're seeing. Dude, I've lived with this for like over a year. I know I'm right. <laughs> so Plutarch tells us that this small victory that Spartacus's army had was the catalyst for the final epic showdown between Crassus and Spartacus because it infused Spartacus's army with confidence and he couldn't hold them back. But I don't know, Jen, like we just had this conversation and I'm gonna have to go ahead and call a little bit of bullshit here beyond what we just said. First off, Spartacus had to know that this was a battle his people couldn't win and that the best they could hope for was a glorious death and maybe a chance for his non-combatants to slip away to safety. Like he had to know that. Yeah, but he also knew that with both Pompey and Lucullus on their way back to Italy, he had no chance of sustaining this rebellion. Soon, seasoned soldiers would surround him on all sides. If he did want to defeat Crassus and get out of Italy, this might realistically have been his last chance. Yeah, he might have been thinking like, well, we have a low chance right now, but we'll have an even worse chance later, so we might as well give it a shot. So Crassus and Spartacus came together for their final fated battle, sine misone, that old gladiator term, to the death. It's said Spartacus began this battle by having his war horse brought to him. And both Jenny and I find this fact very hard to believe, Plutarch. Spartacus drew his sword and slaughtered his horse before his whole army. And there's a part of me that kind of wants to believe this was a ritual for Bendis and Codis, who were both warrior and huntress goddesses. But I think it's Roman bullshit. Spartacus told his followers that if he won, he'd have his pick of fine Roman horses. And if he lost, well, he'd have no need for a horse anymore. Spartacus is a horse lord. He's a proud Thracian horse lord. He understands horses. He loves horses. He caught that horse on the plains of Italy. He's trained it to his hand. He's not going to just willy-nilly kill his horse. I call bullshit. And also, I want to call bullshit on it for this other reason before we talk about why it might be true. 
as a general leading your army, you don't kill your horse because how are people going to find you? How are they going to see you on a battlefield? You have to be in an elevated place. Yeah. So to me, it's like, why exactly would he do that? I think it's because Plutarch wants to paint for us this epic picture of Spartacus. You can imagine that this act of killing his horse would have lifted the spirits of his infantry and his slingers. You know, Spartacus was not going to fight as a general on a horse commanding a battle, which is probably what he would have done if he wanted to win a battle. Instead, he was going to throw his lot in as a common foot soldier and charge at the enemy for glory. I can see the appeal of that. As a storyteller, I can see the appeal of that. As a practical guy who's eluded Rome for so much, I don't see the appeal of it. Like, it really seems like I'm just going to narrow my chances to nothing. Yeah, it seems like almost a suicidal act. Absolutely. Anyway, so Plutarch gives us these scant few details on the final battle. I want more details on the final battle, Plutarch, but this is what we've got. Plutarch, if I turn this into Jenny, she would send it back to me with her editorial notes being like, I want more blood, I want more guts, I want more details, this is unacceptable for the podcast. And you know what, Plutarch? She would be right. Plutarch, this is unacceptable for the podcast. Who is your editor, Plutarch? (laughs) Anyway, so I'm just going to give you some of the scanty-ass bullshit that Plutarch drips out to us. Quote, then pushing his way towards Crassus himself through many flying weapons and wounded men, Spartacus did not indeed reach Crassus, but slew two centurions who fell upon him together. Finally, after his companions had taken to flight, he stood alone, surrounded by a multitude of foes, and was still defending himself when he was cut down. That's what Plutarch tells us about how Spartacus died. Spartacus's body was never found. It's believed that he died on the field of battle, making his way towards Crassus, fighting for the freedom of his people. And I mean, I like to believe he was fighting to give his non-combatants a chance to escape into the mountains, to the sea, or wherever else they were able to find refuge. Mm -hmm. And we know that for the next sort of like 15, 20 years, they were always finding some of Spartacus's rebels in the mountains. Because we know Octavian, Augustus's dad, allegedly got the last of the rebels. So Spartacus died a free man on his feet, a proud Thracian god of war. Crassus got his victory, but that victory was short-lived. As Crassus was fighting this battle, Pompey swept down from Spain. He finally had arrived. Pompey had arrived, everybody. He encountered some of Spartacus's non-combatants fleeing the battlefield, and he slaughtered them all as if they were enemy warriors. Then he wrote to the Senate and told them, that he'd been the one to wrap up the Spartacus War. This is so Pompey. This is the most Pompey thing that I've ever seen. He did this with Sertorius when he came to Metellus's aid. Like, he did this with the pirates. This is so Pompey. He rocked up at the last minute and took all the credit for Crassus's hard work. This is what the teenage butcher does. I mean, to be fair, we haven't followed his career in the Mithridatic Wars. We have not covered the whole of Pompey's career. We just have observed that when we see him, He does this a lot. So after the battle, Crassus rounded up about 6,000 of the surviving rebels. He wanted to crucify them all. He wanted to provide an object lesson, let's say. That's exactly what he wanted. He wanted there to be a tangible thing to show people what he did and how many people he was fighting against and what happens when you go up against Rome. So people around Crassus really objected to this. Surely these surviving rebels could just be taken back into enslavement, right? 
It was surely better to return them to slave owners or Crassus. You could sell them, right? I mean, look, these are people's property. This is what they were saying. Surely it's more just to just return people's property to them, is what these Romans were saying, no doubt. Think about, like, how expensive all of that wood and nails would be for crucifixions. Like, crucifying someone was kind of an investment. It's expensive to crucify someone. What a waste of money, Crassus. But... The Romans were talking to Crassus, and he said, Look, I'll pay for the wood and the nails. Money is no fucking object. I want it. It's going to happen. So on Crassus's orders, 6,000 people were crucified on the Appian Way from Capua to Rome, a terrible reminder of the consequences of trying to overthrow the proper Roman order. But Crassus didn't get the one thing he wanted after all this, his triumph. In the end, the Senate felt that this victory didn't warrant one. It wasn't honorable. Triumphs were usually given to Roman generals who fought foreign enemies in great wars. Crassus had only put down a slave rebellion on Italian soil, and surely that wasn't worth a triumph. The most credit that they would give him was an ovation, which was a kind of toned-down parade thrown when the conquered enemy was seen as quote-unquote basely inferior. Ugh. Ugh. Fuck you, ancient people. Fuck off. So during an ovation, you did not get to ride through the city in a chariot. You had to walk. And you couldn't wear a laurel crown. You had to wear a myrtle one. This was super important to these people. Crassus petitioned to be allowed to wear a laurel crown instead of a myrtle one. This was the hill that he was prepared to die on. (laughs) I want my laurel crown. That dude was ready to die on the Laurel Crown Hill. And the Senate was like, all right, you know what? Fine. You're a pain in the ass. We'll just fine. Wear the Laurel Crown. It's not. It's fine. Fine. Just fucking give him his crown that he wants. Fine. So historians don't know what Spartacus's reasons for fighting were. Many believe in the large Spartacus, who was a man who fought for ideals and against the institution of slavery itself. Still others believe that Spartacus was only fighting for his own freedom and that of his followers and was perhaps not so idealistic. And there's really no way to know. But for thousands of years afterwards, others would find courage to rebel against oppressors in Spartacus's name. The institution of slavery didn't crumble at Spartacus's death, but he inspired people and he showed what was possible. He belongs to all of us now. So what happened to the remainder of Spartacus's army? What happened to the Thracian lady? We'll never know. I want to believe that some of them made it back to their homelands, that a few people once again got to see the mountains of Thrace, the forests of Germania, the lakes of Gaul, and the plains of Scythia. I want to believe that some of them got to breathe once again the clean, free air of their homelands, far removed from Roman oppression. That's what I want to believe. And because the ancient sources don't know exactly what happened, that's what I'll choose to believe. That somewhere over the mountains, beyond the Ionian Sea, some of Spartacus's rebels made it to the freedom that so many had fought and died for. So that's it for this week. Join us in two weeks for a brand new episode. It's going to be a bit of a sea change, but Jenny and I were really excited about it. And we're kind of leaving Spartacus's story here, but we're not. In the meantime, come and find us on social at Ancient Histfan on Twitter and at Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. And make sure that you check out our Patreon. 
For as little as $2 a month, you can get access to exclusive episodes, including a brand new one about Sertorius's red wedding-style death, deep dives into Pirate Queen's mythology and our Jackasses of the Arena series featuring emperors who decided to try their hands at being gladiators, just in case you can't get enough gladiator goodness in your life. Listen, if you're not ready to leave the life, you're still brainwashed. If you still need to be a part of the gladiator cult. Lutus for life. We've got you, okay? We're not going to leave this world for a little while. Look, if Jenny and I have become your Lanistas. I didn't sign up to be a cult leader, but apparently we're cult leaders. Look, if Jenny and I have become your Lanistas and you're not quite ready to leave this gladiator life yet, we have you covered on the Patreon. We are so grateful to our patrons. Your support is the reason we're able to continue this podcast, and we'd really like to thank a few new patrons we've had recently. So thank you to... Sasha Millstone. Ashton Hall. Plebhugger. Thank you, Plebhugger. If you're not into Patreon, but you'd still like to help, check out our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com, where you can throw us a few bucks through our Ko-Fi account. And find a link to our new amazing merch, which by now I will probably have got live. We hope that we will have a few new things for you guys to check out by the time this launches, but you never know. It's in August. We should. Literally everything about this podcast is so excruciatingly time-consuming that we have no idea. It really is. And getting your store set up on Threadless, which is where we're moving to, is very time-consuming. And if you're not able to support us financially, and we totally understand, it's rough out there for so many people, us included, please take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. This is a great free way to give us some love and support. Or just share the news about our show with your friends, family, and anyone else you know who loves ancient history. So thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do this show without you. Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.